Major League Baseball. This is the Nosebleeds Podcast on WFUV Sports. The Nosebleeds Podcast on WFUV Sports. Shout out to our friend Nick DeLuca and that (laughs) intro. Hey everybody, this is Nosebleeds. WFUV Sports is one and only baseball podcast. You haven't heard my voice in a while, have you? It's Dylan Balsamo here alongside my friends Ryan Gregoire and Danny Scott. This is unfortunately my final episode of Nosebleeds as it looks. But uh, Ryan, a a pleasure of you to put me on the schedule so we could do this. Dylan, Ted Williams at a home run his last at bat. That's what I expect you to do here today in your final Nosebleeds. If it is, we'll see. But knew I had to give you one last ride. Absolutely. But Danny, so you and I don't know each other as well. I wish we did because you you seem like a great guy. You um, recently got to see your San Francisco Giants in person cover them when they were uh, in town and played the Mets. How was that for you? Uh, that was fantastic, and especially because it was the only game that they won. You know, the Mets are a pretty yeah. good team, and I know you're you're a Mets guy. There's a lot of Mets guys around the station nowadays. Um, but getting to see the Giants take one from the Mets, that was absurd. It was, I, it was a great time. Yeah, I was actually there as a fan uh, for that oh, game. Yeah, we f- were. I was tweeting at you. Exactly. <laughs> it, was a f- it was a fun little story. Uh, so I'm an RA here uh, at Fordham in, in Queens Court. I have some freshmen, and I used my entire budget for the semester to take them to one Mets game. I was able to bring like eight of my residents. They really like had to enter a raffle, and then eight of them won, and I got to bring them to the game, and I brought them to the one game, that, one of eight <laughs> games the Mets have lost this year, uh, and it was against the Giants. Against the Giants. Uh, but, you know, other, uh, other than that, uh, a pretty good start to the season for the New York Mets. Let's start this episode of Nosebleeds by talking about them. As we sit here right now, recording this at 5.38, as I look at my clock right here, they are 16-8 and eight on the season. They're playing the first game of a doubleheader against the Braves. They lead 5-4 to four in the bottom of the seventh, my last of my looks. They lost the game 5-2 last night. I happen to be there myself uh, covering this for the great WWE trend I uh, see coming along with you and the Mets this year? Well, of just me covering them? And they lose? Just, oh, you being there and they lose? Yeah, well, no, so it's funny, so... Uh, as as you well know, I've been on this kind of bucket list um, yes. uh, bucket list farewell tour of just covering teams in the New York area. They're zero and three when I cover them. <laughs> Next, the Knicks lost, the Rangers lost, the Mets lost, and so there. Uh, I had to I had to back out of a Yankee game, and the Yankees cons- should consider themselves lucky that I I uh, I didn't join them for a game. But either way, you know it's been a good start to the season for the Mets. Ryan, what sticks out? with them for you so far how about the fact that Jacob deGrom hasn't pitched an inning who knows when he will and they have the best rotation in baseball it's not even close yeah and that's with him out best starting pitching ERA it's like they haven't missed a beat whatsoever I think when you look at just the pitching side I guess we'll get into the hitting later it's so impressive we knew Scherzer there's no other there's no better 1B in the sport than Max Scherzer so for him to slide in seamlessly that was 92 but how about like a Tyler McGill a guy who needed the injury to get in the rotation. He's leading them in ERA, under 2 ERA. They've just been a story. Chris Bassett looks like one of the moves of the offseason. I've been so impressed with the pitching starting-wise. The the bullpen, I think, is probably the weakness of this team, but the starting pitching, I think, is 100% the story of their year thus far. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about the starting pitching, 
Uh, Scherzer and McGill are the two guys that I have kind of pegged out to. Both have four wins on the season, which is tied for the best in baseball on the same staff. Scherzer has 42 strikeouts already, which is second best in baseball. And as an entire unit, they lead baseball with 241 strikeouts on the year. Uh, this pitching staff is absurd, and like Ryan mentioned, with doing this all without Jacob deGrom is something that Mets fans, not only just in New York, but Mets fans around America and the world, should be pretty stoked about. You know, uh, the Mets at their worst, at least in my experience with them, is is you can you can rely on one or two guys every five days, and you obviously that was Jacob Degrom in the heat of like 2018 and 2019 with two really bad teams, and he's putting up Cy Young Award campaigns. Um, but then that's kind of it. Like that's where you're getting most of your wins from, with the exception of you know maybe like a, a streaky August, if you will, in 2019 in the past. But I don't really see much of a weak spot in this rotation as it is. You know, we you, t- you talk about Degrom when he comes back, he'll be hopefully what he was, if not at least maybe a fraction of that, and that's still going to be one of the most dominant pitchers that's in the game. still a top five pitcher exactly. in baseball. <laughs> and ima- imagine thinking Max Scherzer is your 1B. That's insane. Yeah. He continues to put up good numbers, did back against the Phillies a couple days ago. Chris Bassett was a guy who really went under the radar this offseason. I think a lot of people just didn't know about him because he plays for yeah. a team like that... He was top 10 in the ERA last exactly. year. Exactly. He play- but he played for a team that garners you know 2,000 fans a game, and that's mm-hmm. and that- that's really it. So, so there's that, and Tyler McGill is a kind of guy who, you know, if you've watched the Mets over the last couple of years, you've gotten to see his progression um, and him really uh, turn into the pitcher that he has already become, and I'm sure he'll continue to progress some way in terms of mechanics himself, but he's been like that. And, you know, you talk about uh, the weakness of this team perhaps being the bullpen, and of course that there's going to be issues with that. Trevor May had a rough uh, eighth inning last night against Atlanta, but you know, a guy who gets a lot of flack often is Edwin Diaz because the guy knows how to blow a save. But, you know, we are in an era of closers. The post-Mariano Rivera era of closers. It's not the has, same. It has a lot of imperfect closers, but a lot of them are really dominant when they're on. Aroldis Chapman's a great example of that, right? Edwin Diaz, when he's on his game, we saw that in the ninth inning of the combined no-hitter last week, uh, he really knows what he's doing. So even, even the weaknesses on this Mets team are things you can get around. And I think a really important thing that I'd like to talk to you guys about now uh, is the lineup. Just insane. Yeah, and to score 10 runs the other day without a homer, that says a lot yeah. about the balance because they're just doing so, slapping the ball over the place. They're, I think, top five in runs. You obviously have your Pete Alonzos who are going to go deep and everything like that, but the depth of the lineup, it's really one through eight. James McCann is the one guy who can't get a hit. That's a horrible <laughs> one. Let's it's all right. That. It's fine. We're going to cut that. But he just he can't hit, and outside of that, you look at this lineup, Lindor, after that first two months last year where he was one of the worst players in baseball. Yeah. He had a great last four months of the year. Overall, the complete body of work was just eh. It looks like he's kind of turned that around. I know he's in a bit of a slump, but overall, he's been one of the best hitters on their team. A guy like Starla Marte hasn't even got it going yet. His on-base is under 300. You bet he's going to end up above that. And then you have the Jeff McNeils, who are bouncing back 350. Mark Hanna, 400 on base. That's an off-season move. We talk about flying under the radar. They got him at a discount, and that was someone who the analytic community loved, and he's put it together this year, a big year for the Mets. So they've kind of revamped the lineup in the offseason. Conforto no longer here, and all the buttons that they pushed, even Eduardo Escobar, just a professional hitter, they've seemed to really work. And I know we're only a month in, but what they did to revamp the team, it shows that there's an ability to have sustained success with the lineup. Yeah, and I, I... One thing that you brought up that I was looking through is uh, they're not hitting a lot of home runs. They only have 19 home yeah. runs on the year, which is tied for 17th best in baseball. Yeah. Um, 
But what's insane is they have the most hits, 208 hits on the year, second-best team batting average, tied for third and run differential at 34 runs plus. This team is just hitting the ball all over the yard. It's not leaving the yard, but you bring up a guy like Jeff McNeil. So far in the season, 360, which is sixth-best in baseball, 10 RBIs. He has more RBIs than strikeouts this year. So far through the year. Wow. He has 10 RBIs, 9 strikeouts through, what are 24 games so far? Today's the 25th and 26th games, 20, yeah. Yeah, so through through 24 games, he has more RBIs than strikeouts. Jeff McNeil is all the way back, one of the best uh, contact hitters in baseball. A guy doesn't strike out. You bring up Starling Marte, 18 RBIs, which is 5th best in baseball for a guy that's not even getting it going yet. Um, this this lineup is scary, and uh, hopefully when MLB unjuices the balls, you'll see some guys like <laughs> Pete Alonso start to go uh, a little yard or yard a little more often. Yeah, perhaps so. It's it's interesting you bring up a guy like Jeff McNeil because over the last couple of years he's been an interesting guy to watch. So he entered Monday with the third best uh, average in the National League, seventh best OPS. He had gotten 27 hits in 22 games, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So he has just been tearing the cover off the ball to start off the season. Uh, but he was a guy who specifically last year in his age 29 season looked like he had almost completely lost it. Yeah. And what it really looked like from uh, a perspective at the plate is that he didn't know what kind of hitter he wanted to be because he, you know, he doesn't, you know, have the appearance of a power hitter at all. Um, and he he looked like he was trying to swing for the fences when he looks like a Dustin Pedroia type, if for lack of a better yeah. term. Um, but he he kind of refound that thing, and I think what really did it honestly last year is. The scare of Javier Baez coming to take his job really seemed like it was the thing that sparked the fire in him. And now after an offseason in which he's had to, you know, have that marinate and Baez isn't on the team, but there's still questions of, you know, where's McNeil going to play? Because he could play left field, second second base, and third base, and you got Dom over at left field, and he could play first base. And there's, there's just so many different uh, interchangeable things the Mets can do, especially with the DH now, that it, it feels like it's almost calmed Jeff down a little bit and he's been able to get back to the hitter he was before. There were legitimate questions, like, should they move on? Because you talk about he's a guy who came up late, I think that 2019 where he really popped off, like an older guy, 27, and then, you know, you're getting into those years, supposed to be your prime. Last year he really struggled. We knew they needed to make changes in the lineup. I think if they replaced Jeff McNeil, there wouldn't have been this outcry. Yeah. But you give him credit because he's one of the guys, and I think you make a great point because you look at him, his stature, he looks like just a contact guy, and, and he had some, you know, power previously when the balls were more juice so finding that balance we've seen it across baseball last year where offense was down I think he's done a great job this year of not trying to be who he's not like he's just playing his he's hitting the way that Jeff McNeil succeeds and hits and I think that's what's really led to his success this year and obviously he's not getting the year batting 350 but I think having the approach and knowing what he wants to do every time in the play there's no reason he can't be a 310 guy who makes an all-star team this year yeah Completely agree with you. And and one thing that I think may be interesting and something for you guys to think about for a second is um, does all the additions that they had this year really help Jeff McNeil out? Now he's not being tasked with, you know, I have to bat 400 this year and hit 30 home runs for us to succeed. You bring in a guy like Cana, you bring in a guy like Escobar, Lindor figures it out in New York, Alonzo stays hot. The weight is not on his shoulders like it maybe once was or uh, dispersed between him and Alonzo, 
And I think he's just he looks more relaxed this year from what I've seen from him in the past. He's just going up and playing baseball. It's not he doesn't have to play hero ball this year. You gotta go up and you gotta play baseball. You know, just, <laughs> come on, you gotta you know go up there and play baseball. It sounds like an old head saying no, that, it, it, but, it, it but does. It, it's real. Like I I've played baseball for a lot of years. I still yeah. play on the club team here. Shout out I, the club team. Yeah, there, shout out the team. I knew that was coming. Yeah, knew that but, was coming. Uh, um, you know, it's it's really like baseball. I think it was Yogi Bear said it it's 90 percent mental 50 percent physical and if that doesn't make sense to you then you don't know baseball then you don't know baseball that's right danny i actually want to ask you about something else too because as much as we could talk about the great acquisitions the mets made this offseason on the field uh it might be that their best acquisition was actually someone who does not necessarily play in the game and that is buck showalter now you um are a giants fan you got to see bruce bochi in that real twilight of his career and he, and he brings san francisco the um, the three championships in five years. And I'm curious, in your perspective, what about Bruce Bochy made him a good manager? And because I, I sense some of those things personally in Buck Showalter, maybe not a three titles in five years kind of guy. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mainly jinx anything, but, you know, what is it that makes a good manager and why is it so important to a good team? You know, I think uh, what really makes a good manager is kind of letting your guys play, um, kind of uh, guiding them along the way. But you're not at this at this stage in their developmental process as major leaguers. They're not you're not going to teach them very many new things. You're not going to fix their swing. You just got to let them kind of work through their stuff. And that was a thing that I thought Bochy always did a good job of is he just he put the lineup out there, let his guys play and work stuff out on their own. And he was always very calm and he got fired up when he needed to obviously but he was a player previously um i can't remember if buck is i'm sorry for all the mets fans um but no it was so long ago who who cares bochi was a player so he understands what they were going through and just being able to relate to players and you know having that kind of um relationship where you know you're their boss but like i know where you've been and i know what you're going through so i can help you work through that if you got questions for me i'll answer them but you're gonna play the game of baseball and we're gonna do it the right way i i'll be the first to admit i didn't think buck Schalter was gonna succeed here really i loved buck as a person and he'd been on the yes network crew the mm-hmm. last few years he almost got that job a few years ago you saw a lot of people i just thought that his time as like a baseball mind was a little bit in the past in terms of how the game shifted. But that's exactly what the Mets have needed. A guy with four decades of experience who's like a no-nonsense, like, we're going to do it this way. I think for their specific team and the culture they were trying to build, it's worked a ton. So I've already done a 180 in a month into his tenure where just I didn't think – and there have been some you know bullpen question marks where I've seen fans be like, oh, is that really the move we're making? But for the most part, he's done the right things. He's pushed the right buttons. And having that presence, you've seen the players, they think the world of him. Because of that four decades, he's won three managers of the year. He's someone that demands respect when he's in a room. And I think you're seeing that. And Louis Roas, just the dichotomy and to switch to the other side here, he was a guy who everyone loved, right? Like a great guy, everything like that. But, but the, I think there's a different relationship with Buck because he's yeah. older and he's – seen more so I think it's like more of a respect level of like this guy is superior to me and like I'm gonna listen to him that I think has really worked with them in trying to build this culture because I think now managers that really is the most important thing it's the culture they can bring they're not really making the lineups every day that's the front office that's the analytic like they're just getting a spreadsheet whatever this is what it's gonna be so I think now it's about those interpersonal relationships and that I think what Buck has thrived on yeah, yeah. I real quick I could not agree with Ryan Moore 
That's all I have. You you yeah. stopped me in my tracks in order to say <laughs> yes. that. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, what, what what was I even saying? What does it even matter? No. So I want to give credit to Luis Rojas um, just for a second here because you know he was the manager of the Mets for two seasons where. Um, you know, th- that's a really difficult ship to navigate, and I don't think a lot of the things that he got blamed for were necessarily his fault. He got thrown in fault. a horrible situation. He did. He absolutely did. Obviously, he kind of came in in the in the wreckage of the Carlos Beltran disaster after the whole Astros uh, fiasco happened. So 2020 already was a shortened season, and that was going to be rough anyway because the Mets just weren't a good team at that point. And then 2021, you know, things just fell apart, and a lot of that had nothing to do with him. Um, so it, it's just difficult, and you know I hope he gets his chance in the sun as a manager again. But and you know he's been a great third base coach for the Yankees. He has been, he's but been. A, a, a big part of it is that might be a good place for him right now because as of right now he's younger than some of the players that he manages. <laughs> that he at least he was for you know Rich Hill was older than him when he came to the Mets last summer. So you know maybe it's just not the time for him. But you know it, as you mentioned the the relationship with Buck Showalter is, is different, and I can understand where your hesitation was coming into the beginning of this season because he did kind of seem like he was just going to be an old school guy pure old school and 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 there was nothing to nothing more to it than that and as much as you know it was helpful to kind of have a more old school guy who was going to write a ship and be like this is how we're going to do things there's also a matter of you know just be having aged out of the game but he has proved that he did not do that at all he proved that from the first press conference on and and there's specifically a video from uh, one of his pregame press conferences today uh, heading in the double header when he was talking about you know trying to navigate all the emotions in the clubhouse when uh, the roster was going to be cut by two players uh, as it was all across Major League Baseball a couple of days ago and how he felt it was really difficult for um, uh, to make sure players who weren't going to get cut knew they were safe and he was just talking about how important it was to like don't tell anybody how to feel and and let people uh, let people contemplate this themselves and and if they need to express something in a certain way then let them do that and I went whew I cannot think a lot of 60-plus baseball guys who would say that. That was To me, that was a really powerful thing to do. And in this age of baseball, it, it just felt like incredibly refreshing. So credit to Buck Showalter for that, and credit to the New York Mets for their 16-8 and eight record to this point in the season. We'll see where they are a week from now. But let's turn to the other side of New York. Uh, in a transition that has been made a thousand times in the history of the Nose Please podcast from <laughs> one time. New York team to another. Well, let's talk about the Yankees, who actually at this point have a better record than the Mets do. They're 17-6. and six. And as I mentioned to you before we started uh, this uh, recording of the podcast, Ryan, the Yankees are a kind of team that, you know, obviously they're not bad. They're certainly not bad. And they're a really tough division. But the day they popped up in first place, I went, oh, whoa, when did that happen? Yeah, so this, I mean, they won 10 straight games. That's how it happened, yeah. right? But what's different about this team, they just kind of, they went into the year. I think this is the least excited Yankee fans have been about the <laughs> yeah. team in so long. That there's just, so there's a sense of dread of like, this is this is really the last chance. This is the last chance. I mean, and you see with Judge impending for agency, who knows what's going to happen there. But I was listening to something earlier, and they were listing some of the differences from last year. So let me just read them for a second. So at this point last year, the team had four total stolen bases. This year, there's five guys with multiple. They were overall in the year top five in double play rate. This year, they're below league average. 39% of their homers last year with men on base. This year, it's 52. That's top five in the league. And this was the craziest to me. They have nine sack flies on the year. Last year, they didn't have nine sack flies until game 66 oh of the year. Gracious. So, like, you list all those different things. That's different this year. Like, that's a long list of stuff that very positive on the other side. The pitching's been great, too. It's... It's a complete team this year. Last year it wasn't, and that has been the big difference where they've been able to win 10 straight. The first nine were against, frankly, bad teams, right? Guardians, Tigers, Royals, whatever. But yesterday beating the Blue Jays, holding that lineup to two runs, 
after splitting with them previously. They won two of three from the Red Sox. This team has pieces to where how they're winning compared to last year when they went on their win streak is one run sweats every night. This is more sustainable because of the way they're winning, if that makes sense. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it, it's been an offensive explosion for them over the past 10. Uh, they've outscored opponents 70-30 to 30 over the past 10 games, which is absurd. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I kind of felt like the last last time I was on Nosebleeds, which was last week, um, they were like on a two-game win streak, something like that, and s- since they've exploded. Um, so <clears throat> they're currently leading the league in home runs. They have the fifth-best team average third best in RBIs. The the offense is just going berserk. Anthony Rizzo, Aaron Judge, nine and eight home runs respectively uh, for first and second place in all of baseball. Yeah. Um, they just look look like the Yankees that you kind of expect um, from year to year, a team that's going to just mash the ball and score a lot of runs. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at, at a point that's this early in the season, a 10-game win streak will will truly, truly be the difference with things. Because, you know, if, if they go 5-5 five and five during those 10 games as opposed to, you know, 10-0, and 0, they're a 500 team at this point. But, you know, it's it's we're getting to that we're getting to that turning point where all of a sudden, you know, you're in the midst of a season when you're in the middle of May and then all of a sudden you're you're really a team. And, you know, I am someone who in, in the last couple of years with the Yankees, I've been hesitant to you know, really put my stamp of approval on them when they're tearing offensively because it just never seems sustainable enough for things to work. But the way that the Yankees are being able to produce runs right now, the way they're able to hit home runs right now, it's not in a it's not in a flashy kind of way. It's just, you know, if the ball leaves the ballpark, then the runs are going to come home. That kind of thing, you mentioned the sack flies, Ryan. That's the kind of thing that makes me a little more confident in this Yankee team than I have been in the past. Yeah, they're able to manufacture runs last, just yesterday. Ninth yeah. inning tie game, 2-2. Stanton gets a base hit. They pinch run in for Tim McClastro. Steals second, advances the third on a gra- like ground out, then Glaber Torres base hit. That's a manufactured run. The team didn't do that last year. and no. We just went over numbers. That's why it is different. Isaiah kiner Falefa had a huge hit to tie a game that I believe started this win streak. It was the second game of this win streak. That's someone who wasn't on the team last year. He's been a 300 hitter for them, just switching up the approach a bit. They're not hitting the ball on the ground as much. That was killer last year. All the rally ending double plays. It's funny because two weeks ago, it's a different conversation. It's This is the same old Yankees as last year. After they lose 2-3 or three to the Orioles, there were tweets like, I don't care what happens. This team is over. They have to sell. And just two weeks later, it's like they have the best record in baseball. Well, to me, that's the main thing here is, you know, something that the Yankees really didn't do last year, and they've struggled with it for the last couple of years, but they seem to have turned it around within the last two weeks is, you know, you have to win those games against the Orioles. Even this early in the season, you have to win those games. Because last year, you look at, like, they're begging, they're crawling for every win at the end of the year. Point back to that April series to get swept. Would have been enormous. Not to mention the games they were losing against the Orioles in September. It was huge. And I think a lot of us, Danny, are going to look at that that Easter Sunday game that Nestor Cortez pitched and uh, and the fact that the Yankees were not able to win that game in in a game in Baltimore that they have not only are supposed to win, but quite frankly, at this point, they have to win just to prove to a fan base that, like, they're for real this time. Um, But, you know, they really have turned things around since then. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they're playing the the best teams in baseball, if we're being honest. They took... They swept the Orioles, they swept the Guardians, they swept the the Royals, took one from the Blue Jays. But, you know, 
that's what you should be doing against these teams. And I think that's a very welcoming sign if you're a Yankees fan where it's like, okay, you know, that, that game against the Orioles that we lost, Nestor pitched great, blah, 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 all that stuff. But then you kind of turn it around and you go, okay, you know what, we really have an opportunity to show everyone what we're capable of this year. And I think they've done a great job at that over these past 10. Like I said, outscoring by 40 runs in 10 games, uh, that their plus on the year is 42. So they've made up 40 of those runs over the course of the past 10 games, which is absolutely absurd. It's an outstanding differential. And, you know, as we talk about with any April stats, it's not something that's going to last forever. No. But, you know, as we've talked about, this is It probably won't win every game the rest of the year. Probably not. Probably. I like I, I so here's the thing. I'm like not ready to say that yet, you know what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not ruling it out, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I just I'm not ready to say it out loud yet. But um here's the thing. This Yankee team feels a lot more sustainable than they did in 2021, than they did in 2020, than they did in 2019, quite frankly. And that 2019 team was a good really team good. went to the yeah. ALCS. So l- let me ask you both. Um you know, obviously the Yankees this is the year or else it's going to fall apart. And then the Aaron Boone, era, Aaron Boone era is a disaster. The Baby Bombers era is a complete disaster. That's already over, my It's eyes. It's basically over. Gary Sanchez gone, and he, of course he was the main guy. But <laughs> uh, l- let me ask you, as of right now, do the Yankees look like they're the, they are the team that they need to be to win the World Series, or is the trade deadline going to be that important for them? I think really the only thing, because we haven't talked, and we talked about Nestor Cortez, is 1-3 ERA in the year, but they have the second lowest in all of baseball. What they have over a team like the Mets is that bullpen. Yeah. There's, they had their fifth best reliever closing a game yesterday, and like it was 1-2-3 inning. Mm-hmm. That's that's a luxury that the Yankees have, and they've had you know the last five years or so that yeah. a lot of other teams don't. But the issue was the starting pitching. Right now, and we Garrett Cole had two horrible starts, hasn't given up a run since. His ERA all of a sudden is a three. Luis Severino is the highest ERA in the rotation. It's still under four, and he has fantastic stuff he's carried no hitter into the sixth inning in a game so that's why I think right now they are playing that complete style of baseball obviously you wish you could just take this slide it to the end of the year place it in to that part when their games are mean so much more that's not how baseball works the reality is they probably won't have another 10 game win streak of the year so you have to make it count for now but every it's because they're firing on all three cylinders starting rotation bullpen and the lineup, they really only have one weakness, and that's Kyle Higashioka, similar to the Mets, where their catcher has been kind of a black hole. It's like Mets haven't picked up the memo that the NL doesn't have a pitcher spot. Yankees have adopted a pitcher spot in that <laughs> nine hole with him just being an yeah. automatic out. So I think besides that, there's nothing in this lineup that really gives you concern. And you even look at it like Danny listed all the offensive stats. Giancarlo Stanton hasn't got it going at all. Like he's Josh Donaldson's been horrible. These are guys I think you expect to pick it up. So in that sense, they can get even better. Better. Obviously, there'll be some regression from a Rizzo and a Judge probably in the rotation a little bit. But I think that balance is it gives confidence that number one thing again, and it's the theme, it's stability because it sustains success. What they're doing now, as opposed to just winning all these crazy games. So you know what's a little funny is is I'm gonna disagree a little bit. I think you mentioned that is a, that is a little funny actually. <laughs> you you uh you mentioned their starting rotation and it's it's good. It's not great, but you know as as a Giants fan when they won the three World Series, their offense was good, not great, but it was their pitching staff that really led them to three World Series. And you know Madison Bumgarner did it basically by himself. And I don't know if Garrett Cole and Nestor Cortez are going to be able to do that for the entire year and keep it going. And obviously Cole hasn't been great. But if I'm 
uh, the GM of the Yankees, I'm looking to add a, a maybe a number two starter to this rotation to really solidify that starting rotation. And I think that's probably the biggest weak point that we've seen so far. At one point, it was the 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 lineup, uh, the lineup but yeah. they've kind of figured it out. The strong point is obviously the bullpen. And, you know, when you get into these deep playoffs runs, the bullpen is great to have. However, do you want to pull your starter after three innings so that you can get your better arms in there? I think you really need to look towards a guy that's going to be able to eat up innings, maybe only give up a run to two runs a game deep into the postseason. The you one know. thing I want to say there is just who would you take out of this rotation? Because we didn't mention Jordan Montgomery. He's actually leading the team, qualified, 2-8 ERA. Tyone's going to start tonight. He's a 3-2 ERA. He, you know, from June on last year was a top 10 in ERA. So, and then we talk about you're not taking out Nestor Cortez. You're not taking out Garrett Cole. No. Luis Severino, I mean, like, he's someone who he's finally healthy for the first time since he was a Cy Young candidate. So that's the the one thing. And they went big in the offseason. They tried to get Verlander. After that, they went, okay, we're good with this five. So without injury, I just don't see a scenario where a starter, I think it's probably another reliever and a bat in my eyes what they need to do but I mean you're so far along who knows yeah you know this could be a completely different uh situation that we're talking about come you know or late June and early July when we're starting to think about guys who you could get at the trade deadline but the the dangerous thing for the Yankees or anyone in the American League East of those those four the Yankees the Blue Jays the Rays and you know the Red Sox have gotten off to a rough start but they'll they'll find their way is that you know the Yankees have had a very good two weeks here, but you can have a really bad week and a half and it come June, you're in fourth place. So, you know, it might be a different conversation. This Yankee team looks like they're really good, and it looks like they could potentially go the distance as much as anyone in the sport right now. But, you know, it's going to be a different question at that point. Regarding the pitching staff, though, you know, I agree. Maybe you need another starter. I don't know who you take out of the rotation, though. What's interesting about the Yankees bullpen-wise, though, is that, you know, obviously we've never seen a bullpen game in the playoffs. Uh, at least we have not in New York, and if there's any team that can do it as of right now, I think it's the Yankees with how strong their bullpen is right now. So maybe that's something that in the future you'll have to think about. But again, that's a that's a question for a whole other period of nosebleeds that you guys will talk about <laughs> in the fall. But as of right now, the Yankees sit at 17 and six. They got their second at three against the Blue Jays tonight in Toronto. Then they're off Thursday. They got the Rangers at home this weekend. Then an off day, and then they will host the Blue Jays next week. So. We got a few minutes left here on nosebleeds, and we're about a month into the Major League Baseball season. And Ryan, you had this interesting idea of something we could do on the show today, and I'd like to uh, I'd like to humor you in that regard. Please do. Just of of the history of, of guys who have had really good months of baseball could be in the month of April, could be sometime during the rookie season, and then there's there's no real trend of that. It, they kind of fall off after that. You know, maybe, maybe they eventually become a consistent player in some regard, but not in the way that we had seen them initially in that month. So uh, I, I'm told you have a, f- uh, a couple guys who uh, stick out to you. So give me a few. Yeah, I have a few different like subsets of that, but the one that fits the description the most is Yankee 2014, Young Hervis Solarte, a guy. Oh, my goodness. Yes, like that's a name that, boom, it just pops into your head. You yeah. completely forget about First 49 games of the year, he, he was the team's best player. First off, he's the only player in the modern era to have six doubles in his first seven games. Oh then his first 49 games hit 300, six homers, 840 OPS. Then he forgot how to hit. He went three for 41, 077 batting average. They called him down. He jumped place to place, but was never the same. But if you remember the Yankees, that was a bad team in 2014. It was Derek Jeter's final season. Yes. They did not make the playoffs that year. He was like, oh my gosh, like 29-year-old rookie, let's build the team around him, he's the next Jeter. 
There was talk of that. I'm sure if you you pull some New York Post back headlines, there is some wild young Hervis Solarte takes in that 49 games. Maybe I'm cheating a little a month and a half. It was truly just special. It was every night he was when he wasn't hitting, he was making barehanded plays at third base, and then he obviously had the bat to go along with it. So that was one when I texted you about this idea. It was like. I want to talk about young Hervis Larte on nosebleeds. I feel like he probably hasn't been brought up ever on this podcast, so I'm glad to be the first to bring him up on this show. Great answer. How about you, Danny? You got so, one? Yeah, I'm going to go um, very recent, very recent guy, Yerman Mercedes. Good last one. year on the Chicago White Sox in the month of April, 402 batting average, five home runs, five doubles, 33 hits, 16 RBIs. He's the only – He's the first player since the year 1900 to start out his career with eight consecutive hits. The first two games, he had eight hits. Eight hits. So he so he go four rookie, for four in both games? He went five for five and then four for three in the second game. Four for three. That's <laughs> mathematically impossible. Three, three, <laughs> Man, this guy must four, be good. Three. Wow. Three for four. Three Bra- for four. Breaking the laws of mathematics. <laughs> but, I mean, the first, like, eight games of his career, he was – at 50% of the time, he was getting a base hit, which is wow. absolutely absurd. And the entire month, he kept it going. He started to cool off, uh, finishes the month of May, back down at 305. And then when he finally got sent down, he was down to 267. And, and if you remember, he put like some really like dark posts about retiring. He yeah. didn't. He walked it back. So that was a wild like four months. That was insane. Yeah. But the, that first month, it was... German mania. I remember I picked him up in fantasy baseball. He started going <laughs> berserk for me. I I took out JT Real Muto to put in German Mercedes, oh my and goodness. he he went off. And then he finally got sent down, and it was it was a sad day. Well, you hit that point sometimes in fantasy baseball. I used to do this when I was a lot younger. But the the second you recognize a player, like you hear their name, it was like I got to get them for my fantasy baseball. Team. <laughs> yeah. Of course, no one else got them because why would they do that? So you grab them, and then you know sometimes it works out, but most times it doesn't. But Ryan, you just brought up an interesting point, and it's 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 a part of baseball that I'm fascinated by. It happens more, I think, in this sport than yeah. in other sports, probably because you play every day. But um, there are a lot of guys who will just be so flashy, and they will take the baseball world by absolute storm. And then when it stops working out, uh, their entire their entire mentality changes, and it's completely different. We've seen a lot of different guys, you know, um, burn out in some way or another. But we we see just all this incredible hype around them uh a fernando mania fernando valenzuela for los angeles is, is the guy who i mainly think of but another los angeles dodger who you know we do not talk about much anymore but you know in his in his time he was really something was yasiel puig if I you guys him, remember I have him. you have him right here I have him. that guy oh my goodness he was the talk of baseball I for hate that guy you hate that guy oh because he was <laughs> that a was that was enough. my other name that's wild. well i mean so i'm looking at his so his first week in the bigs nothing but then you get after that, he's the National League Player of the Week. We got a 464, 483, 964, 1.447 line, four homers, two doubles, 10 runs batted in in seven games. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding he me? He had 500 for a month. 500 for a month. That's <laughs> insane. We're talking about we're talking about Jeff McNeil hitting 360 for a month, that, and that's like crazy. He's not going to do that all year. 500 for a month? Are you out of your mind? But then... <laughs> Everybody figured it out, and then he was a red for a little while, and he, that's he the last bounced we back, about him. and then he went down, and now yeah. I typed him in to look at this, and he he's playing in the KBO. He's so. playing in the KBO. Okay, so at least he, he's figured stuff out. But he's another guy who you know his his um his you might even call him mental health woes were 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 public knowledge. Uh, whatever was going on in the clubhouse was public knowledge. That was a weird time of transition for the Dodgers. They had a couple weird teams at that point. 
So, you know, he's kind of a guy that I look to as just just a, a strange case of of because there are some guys who will be so flashy in the in the beginning of their career and then they won't be that afterwards, but they'll find a way to make things work. Jeff Francoeur is a great example of this. Yes. But Yasiel Puig is not Jeff Francoeur. No, and flashy is the exact way to put it. I remember in like one of his first games, he was like four for four, then the next day at two homers, and then he just catches like a lazy fly ball on right and just guns a guy out at first. Like, oh, it was insane. Didn't, he didn't even take steps off the bag. It was just an absolute laser, like 110 mile per hour I remember just that, dart. Yeah. And it's like, this is the best player in baseball. This is a five-tool <laughs> phenom. Yeah. Well, no, we were talking about him on the on par of like Trout and Harper at that point. Yeah, but for it was like crazy. It, it was, was insane. So let's go around the the table one more time. If you guys have one more, I'd love to hear it. So this is one. I mean, like that was my my second, which I yeah. love that you took. But I, I think something that a lot of Yankee fans will remember, and I, I hate to go back to the Yankee well, but it's Didi Gregorius's twenty eighteen April because oh. I remember after this month, I think he he had the triple crown. He was three thirty ten homers, twelve hundred OPS. Like I remember some of my good friends who I respect baseball opinion, like this guy's better than Jeter. Like there was serious talk. Like he he hit like he had it ended his month hitting like a go ahead homer in the eleventh to get that triple crown for the month. Two homers on opening day, seven RBIs, kept it up. He ended up obviously. I think that May he was one of the worst players in the in the sport, so it evened out. But that month he carried the Yankees. That was a good team. And that first month they got off to a bad start. But he he was something so special in that month. It was every game he was just hitting a home run, and he was not a power hitter too. And the thing that I think was so fascinating with him and why baseball is the best here is because he'd already established himself as a major league player. Like we knew who he was as a guy, and just for one month you can become what you can have four years of what you are, and one month you can explode, and it changes what everyone thinks about you. And that's the beauty of the sport. You don't really see like role players in the NBA having like prolonged success where they take it. So and that's what made Jeremy Lin so special. Like that happens <laughs> very rarely in the NBA, but in the MLB you have those guys who just for a month they are the best player in the sport, and that's what makes it. That's what makes baseball the best, man. Truly. So this is I'm going I'm going a little different from where you guys have been, but uh, this will make a lot of sense. I'm going to talk about the 2014 October of Madison Bumgarner. Oh, good answer. Yeah. Um, the dude, like, I don't even need to go into the stats. He single-handedly won the Giants the 2014 World Series. Uh, wild card game, pitched that, nine shutout innings, four hits, uh, won a game in the NL, or, excuse me, he lost a game in the NLDS, won a game in the, uh, NLCS, won three games in the World Series. Was that the year they were down 2 nothing to the Reds in the NLDS and they came back, or was uh, that no, 2012? 2012. 2012. 2012. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, but in the month of October... Uh, if you have Madison Bumgarner on your roster, there's a decent chance that you are going to win the World Series. <laughs> I learned that three separate times. Yeah. Um, but 2014 was just the most absurd thing I've ever seen. Um, as a 14-year-old starting to really fall in love with the game of baseball, watching this guy just go absolute berserk for an entire month and winning my team World Series, uh, never, ever going to forget that moment. And there was no doubt in that Game 7 when he came in, I think, he, the fifth inning, he was going to yeah. finish it. Like, there was he, no doubt. Like, everybody he, knew right, what went, was going on. He yeah. went, he pitched in three games in, like, a seven-day span, won two of them, and had a four-inning save, yeah. four or five-inning like save. I can't even. five-inning, yeah. I think it was five innings. I think he came in in the fourth. That's insane. And, and one single-handedly, he has like the lowest postseason ERA ever. Not yeah. just not just like that one postseason, like 
over the course of his four that the Giants made yeah. when he was there, he has the lowest postseason ERA of all time. So as, as you mentioned, you know, if you got Madison Bumgarner on your roster in the playoffs, chances are you're going to win the World Series. So you're telling me if the Arizona Diamondbacks find a way to make the playoffs, <laughs> see, that's how you have to. If you got to look <laughs> at it like you got to make you got to make it there first. Oh my goodness gracious! I'm actually I'll wrap things up here by talking about um, a, a member of a team that I root for in the month of October who who really did things. You know, the Mets did not win it that year, but to ignore the 2015 postseason of Daniel Murphy Ooh, would be would would be awful. You know, so Daniel Murphy is a guy. He was a a lifer Met at that point, but it had been a Met for as long as I could remember. You you look at the 2015 season, and it's you know, it's not that he was you know, having a bad go of things, but, you know, he was having a career year, quite frankly, offensively, but it still wasn't at the level that you would think it would be. Um, and then, for whatever reason, as soon as the playoffs started in 2015, he started to rake. He set the postseason record. He, excuse me, tied for the postseason record for most consecutive home, most consecutive games with a home run in the playoffs. Six consecutive playoff games with a home run. The Mets win the NLDS in five games against the Dodgers, a really good Dodgers team at that point. And then they go to the NLCS and they sweep the Cubs a year before they win the World Series. Daniel Murphy's NLCS stats. He was the NLCS MVP. He went 9 for 17, a double, four home runs, six runs batted in, six runs scored in just in four, four games. games. It's insane. <laughs> but the craziest part about that is, you know, every single Met fan on the face of the earth went, where on earth did this come from? And, you know, you can see in retrospect just how Kevin Long had been working with him on his swing, and then, you know, Murphy elects to go to the Nationals where Kevin Kevin and, Long and he, also let's is. Let's clarify, the Mets let him walk after that season. He hits 350 over a three-year yeah. stretch. Yeah, so. and in fairness to the Mets, I, I, I kind of would have done the same thing. I, like, y- you can't judge a guy off of, you know, but the Nats two good weeks of baseball. Out. The Nats didn't. It worked out for them for one season, and then he jumped around to the Cubs, to the Rockies, and it just stopped working for him. So eventually the, the light of Daniel Murphy went out. He will, however, be at Mets Old Timers Day this year. <laughs> will he really? So, yes, he will be. So that'll be very exciting to see. I can't wait for that. I mean, he's been out of the sport for a year. That's crazy. He's been out of the sport for a little while, yeah, so we'll de- definitely see that. But, guys... What a way to end my nosebleeds career. I mean, there's it's no better way than for Dylan Balsamo to go out talking about the probably the greatest Mets team in his life. That That's how it should be. Absolutely. The most memorable for me. Appreciate you being on, man. Oh. I appreciate you letting me be on with you. Oh, it's, it's, a it's an honor to be here with the both of you guys. And really, what an honor to have, have gotten to be on Nosebleeds for all this time. What a, what a great podcast that we have here at WFUV. What a great conglomerate of podcasts we have at WFUV Sports that the two of you will help bring the helm in next year. So if you tune in a week from now, you'll get another episode of Nosebleeds in your podcast pocket. So make sure to look out for that. But for now, for myself, Dylan Balsamo, Ryan Gregware, and Danny Scott, it's so long for now. Nosebleeds is a production of WFUV Sports.